This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 this morning. <clears throat> and we're going to have a look at the propitiation of Christ. The propitiation of Christ. It's a large word. Uh, it's not an easy word to pronounce at first. The propitiation of Christ. You know, right now the world, of course, is waking up to um, chocolate and hot cross buns and, um, you know, all these different kinds of things, uh, rabbits, um, all, all these strange things. The crucifixion of Jesus is relegated to being a fairy tale. It's rele relegated to being a story. Um, it's, it is it's spoken of as a myth. Uh, it's spoken of as um, an example. Um, and uh, it's couched often in just very religious terms. Um, uh, it is derided as being a tragic uh, story of how an angry God could kill his son, all these kinds of things. Um, none of these hit the spot as to what the propitiation of Christ is all about. Spurgeon said, The gospel does not come to us as a premium for virtue, but it presents us with forgiveness for sin. It is not a reward for health, but medicine for sickness. I'll just read that again because it's a wonderful quote and it really does summarize um, the essence of what the gospel is really about. This is from uh, Spurgeon. The gospel does not come to us as a premium for virtue, but it presents us with forgiveness for sin. It is not a reward for health, but a medicine for sickness. And that sickness that Spurgeon is speaking of is the human malady, our sin. So he's not talking about physical sickness. He's talking about a sickness of sin that infects all of mankind. Now, if you ever wonder how wide, how far, how deep uh, the, the love of God reaches, then you need look no further than to look at the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the very, very, very centre of the gospel and it, it leads us to the place of asking, well, then what is the gospel? And that's a great question for us to ask ourselves and it's one that we should ask ourselves and if you uh, happen to be um, an unbeliever who, who is coming across this message or, or a uh, scorner who's following us on the web, whatever it may be, you must ask yourself what the gospel is and why Christians place so much emphasis on the gospel and why does the Word of God, the Bible, place the gospel as the central component of all scripture. 
Well, the gospel, in short, is the record of how Christ propitiated on man's behalf. And that's what John deals with in 1 John chapter 2. So let's turn there, uh, 1 John chapter 2, and let's read from that passage. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you so much for John's epistles. And we praise you for this passage, Lord, which introduces us to this grand theme of Christ, our propitiation. So we praise you and we ask you, Lord, that on this Resurrection Sunday, Lord, that you would give us a deeper meaning, uh, a deeper understanding of the meaning of propitiation and a deeper appreciation for this grand truth. We love you and we praise you. Amen. So what does propitiation mean and why is it important? Is it just a, another theological word uh, that we use to uh, um, to make Christianity sound uh, special, to make it sound good. Um, that's not the case, um, but it is an important word. Vine's Greek dictionary tells us that the Greek word for propitiation is helasmos, and it signifies an expiation, a means whereby sin is covered and remitted. Covered and remitted. So this is the important thing is that there's not just a covering over sin, but that sin is, is remitted. It's taken away and dealt with. The meaning of the word propitiation is tied to the mercy seat, the place in which the blood of bulls and goats was sprinkled to expiate man's sin. And the idea being that at the mercy seat, this blood would be uh, sprinkled on the seat and that man's sin was declared uh, as being washed away by that blood. And this was a type of the uh, mercy seat that was to come. Now, in the New Testament, this word is solely used of Christ himself, that he is our propitiation. Jesus came to earth as a man. Philippians makes it very clear to us that he vacated the throne of heaven to take on the form of a man so that he could come to earth and suffer and die in our place. And he suffered uh, a cruel death so that he would be that mercy seat, in a sense, that the 
mercy of God would be extended to us via the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And to understand this biblically, we, we must start by understanding that firstly, Jesus is the only propitiation for mankind. There is no other propitiation. In verse 2, we read, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked on that, but that is an interesting verse, and uh, it's a, I believe it to be a wonderful verse. He is the propitiation for our sins. Let's, let's stay focused on the main thing here. There are a couple of points here. You and I, as part of the world, are all sinners. And John makes it very clear that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. There are not multiple propitiators. Uh, there are not multiple atonements. Uh, there are not multiple sacrifices that can be made. Jesus is the one and only atonement for mankind's sin. In chapter 4, John uses the, uh, the same verse again, or the same word again. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I mean, what a, a fantastic statement for us to, uh, to be introduced to. Now, it's not only in these passages that the word propitiation is used in the New Testament. Romans 3, verse 25, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over the former sins. And if you go and grab the whole context, you will see that this is the context that of Jesus being the offering for our sins. And in Hebrews, the same word is introduced to us again. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Scripture states to us that Christ himself is the expiatory sacrifice. He is the one who has atoned for our sin. Jesus, through his death, is the sole means by whom God shows mercy to sinners. Every sinner who believes on Christ as the one who has been provided thus. So for every sinner who believes that Jesus Christ was given to die in our place and places faith in Jesus, uh, a, a repentant faith, that is a faith that is focused on humbly seeking God's forgiveness 
and turning from sin while trusting that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, that faith results in the sinner being born again, washed clean from their blood because of the propitiation of Jesus Christ. Now, remember, John described him as the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the whole world. The propitiation for our sins. This speaks of a provision made for the whole world. And, you know, I'm not a universalist. And so just because I make that statement that uh, Christ's blood propitiated for the sins of the whole world, um, nor do I um, need to go in a direction of stating why the whole world in this uh, phrase here that John uses does not mean the whole world of sinners, um, where in other texts it seems that it does mean uh, all sinners. But Vine makes this, uh, this statement in his wonderful uh, dictionary. He says, No one is by divine predetermination excluded from the scope of God's mercy. The efficacy of the propitiation, however, is made actual for those who believe. In 1 John 4 verse 10, the fact that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins is shown to be the great expression of God's love toward man and the reason why Christians should love one another. Well, that's an interesting statement that Vines makes there. And he shows the context of chapter 4, verse 10, being about our love for one another and how we're able to love one another and the example of that being the great love that Jesus showed for us in dying for our sins. So therefore, we should love one another. This is, if there was anything to be uh, taken in the in terms of what, uh, how we can see an example in the, uh, death of Jesus, and not simply an atonement, it is this. This is what John picks up, that we are to love each other because Jesus loved us and propitiated for our sins. The idea of propitiation is so fundamentally important that uh, a simple way to understand it is one who takes another's punishment. And I've often used the example of someone who um, seeing some trouble headed your way, steps in the way to, to take upon themselves the punishment that was due to you. And so in the garden, man was told, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And he ate. And then later, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 18, makes it very clear that everyone who sins is responsible for the punishment that they will receive. They're responsible for their own sin. Romans 3 states that all have sinned. And uh, Romans 6 also. All have sinned. The wages of sin is death. Now let's consider what sin is for a moment and just briefly. Because it is our sin that and understanding what our sin is, that magnifies the grace of God. 
because God, God didn't come to earth and, uh, you know, he did not, um, he, he didn't get a great bargain in this deal. You and I are not a great bargain that God, that God has received. He didn't look down and say, oh, look at these wonderful people. I have to save them because they're so deserving of my love. That's not the case at all. And, uh, and so when we look at 1 John uh, 3 verse 4, 1 John 3 verse 4, if we just come back to that, what is sin? Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Another translation says that sin is transgression of the law. Now, you know, you, you've probably heard me um, use the illustration of a, a, a highway policeman who pulls you over in your car and um, the, he approaches you and he tells you that he's going to give you a fine um, and you say, why? And so then the officer says, because you were speeding and you ask him uh, how much by and he says, you were doing 126 in a 100 zone. And immediately, the law then defines to you exactly what you've done wrong. It, it outlines exactly what you did wrong. And this is the same with God's law. Sin is transgression of the law. God has made a law that is common to mankind. It is a, a moral code uh, that's revealed in such commandments as not to lie and not to covet and not to blaspheme and not to commit adultery or even look with lust. These, even these few commandments reveal to us the depth of our sin. It reveals to us that you and I have all sinned. Now, let's consider that in the light of the propitiation because the propitiation tells us that Jesus propitiated on the behalf of sinners. He, he died, he stepped between us and the wrath of God. He died so that the wrath of God would be poured out upon him as the representative for sinful mankind. Now, a very clear example and, and a type of this, you can, we can go back to Genesis um, uh, chapters three uh, and uh, chapter three, and we can see that God took animals. He he killed them and he made clothes for Adam and Eve. And this was a a foreshadowing of what was to come. But we get a really wonderful example of this in Genesis chapter twenty-two. Now um, you might want to turn to. The chapter and have a look uh, there and, and read through the whole chapter. Um, but we'll pick up the story a little bit further on. And so we know that uh, Abraham, uh, God speaks to Abraham and says, take your son Isaac, whom you love. This is verse two and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And Abraham does this and he stacks the wood and, and everything. And, uh, and then he says, he gets to the location and he says to his young men who are with him, these, these servants, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy uh, 
uh, are going to go over to this mountain and we're going to worship. And then we'll come to you, come to you again. I mean, this, this idea of worship, think about this for a moment from Abraham's uh, viewpoint. Um, these are the words that he declared. Myself and the lad, we're going to go over there and worship and then we will come to you again. This idea of worship is just so foreign to anything that the, the modern church uh, um, presents as worship today. Today, worship is presented as, um, you know, uh, some kind of rock concert. Uh, there's, there's darkened mood lighting. Uh, you know, the stages are blacked out so that they look more like a, a theatre. Um, these kinds of things, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I don't care so much about that whether people do that kind of thing or not. Um, but this is all for the worship time, and um, uh, this worship time. Then, once the singing has concluded, they then get into the preaching and usually a fifteen or twenty minute offering, etc., etc. But Abraham's idea of worship was to go to a mountain where he was going to have to sacrifice his son because God had told him to. This is worship. He's going to worship God with an offering, and that offering was the dearest thing to him, his son. So they're going together. And then verse 7 says, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now they came to the place that built the altar, and, uh, and then um, Abraham uh, bound Isaac, laid him on the altar, and, and he's about to reach the knife up, or he reaches the knife up, and he is about to kill his son. Remember, this is worship. He's just told his men, we're going to go and worship and come back to you. This is what he calls worship. You see, worship is, is about something sacred that is offered up to God. That's a profound thought, and I, I don't think that there's very much within our service today that represents the solemnity and the, and the sanctity of this moment here between Abraham, Isaac, and the Lord. We, the nearest thing we see to this is Jesus from the time he shared the communion meal with the disciples, which we will share together in a moment. And hopefully you prepared something so that we can do that. To the praying in the garden, hunched over that rock and, and sweating drops of blood, to his being beaten and taken then to Golgotha and placed on a cross, this was Jesus offering himself up to the Father, a propitiation, a sacrifice 
to go between mankind, mankind and the Father. Well, remember Abraham has asked, you know, where, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And, and he replies to Isaac, God will provide for himself a burnt offering, my son. God will provide for himself. I mean, isn't that the perfect image of Jesus? For God so loved the world he gave. God provided, God provided a, the God-man, Jesus Christ, for himself. You see, the offering of Jesus satisfied the anger of God against our sins. So primarily, the sacrifice of Jesus was not quantitative. It is qualitative. It is a perfect, a perfect shedding of blood for sinful mankind. Well, verse 13 of Genesis 22, And Abraham lifted up his eyes. Remember, he, he has the knife raised. And the Lord stops him in verse 12 and says to him, I, I know that you have not withheld your son. Don't, don't kill him. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by the, thorns, uh, by the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. That is the key word here, because literally, in a literal sense, this ram propitiated for Isaac. In a literal sense, this ram became the offering instead of, of Isaac. And so the key purpose of this text here is, yes, it teaches us an amazing thing about Abraham, his obedience and his faith. But the key thing to this text is a, a foreshadowing of the Lamb of God, but also it is a, a lesson about the provision of God. Because even if Abraham had offered up uh, Isaac, even if he had killed his son, his son could not be a sufficient offering for sin. There is only one sufficient offering for sin. And then this uh, offering would be repeated in a, in a different manner uh, in Egypt. And it would teach the Egyptians about covering and protection that through the Lamb's blood, Israel was delivered. Exodus 12 Verse 5, you go back and read the whole passage yourself. Your lamb shall be without blemish. This is the lamb they had to choose for the, for the uh, um, uh, Passover meal. A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then... They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, and then it goes through and it 
um, explains all about how they're to eat the meal, etc., etc. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So these two lambs give us a... Um, these powerful truths. The first is that in, in Genesis 22, we have one provided instead of. So there's a replacement. And verse uh, and, and in Exodus, we have one provided that is a covering that allows the Lord to pass over the people who are under that blood and for the Lord not to render judgment. And then we come to John the Baptist's great declaration, which kind of ties these two together, and in, in which John declares, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is something distinct to Jesus. In this, we get the fulfillment of Old Testament foreshadowing, of Old Testament type, of Old Testament mystery, these, these things that were concealed until a later time. And then these things that were concealed were revealed to us in the person of Jesus. And John, with this revelation, John the Baptist, with his revelation of Jesus, he makes that amazing declaration as he sees Jesus coming toward him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, you know, he, he's saying to the people around him, look, look on him, this one here. This is the Lamb of God. This is not the Genesis 22 lamb. It's not the Genesis 3 uh, animals. It is not the Exodus lamb. This is the Lamb of God, the one chosen by God to take away the sins of the world. The revelation that John had here is, is just a phenomenal revelation. This is a revelation of who Christ is, the Lamb of God. And it's a revelation of what he does, takes away the sin of the world. Christ is your ram caught in the thicket. He's your blood, uh, you know, lamb offered to, to be blood on the, on the doorposts and the, the, the lintel of the heart of your life. He's your Passover lamb, that by faith in him, the doorway of your heart can be sprinkled clean with the blood of Jesus so that so that in that day of judgment, you and I, because we are found in Christ Jesus, may stand before the throne of God. And, and as the author of Hebrews says, that we can boldly come before the throne of grace. It's a throne of grace to those who are in Christ Jesus through faith in his blood. God will see that the, the, the punishment uh, that was due to you was instead taken by Jesus when he died on the cross. 
And by faith in that blood, you and I were crucified with him and resurrected to a new life. This is God's propitiation. This is the propitiation of Christ. 1 John 4 verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's read that one more time. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I wonder if you have cried out in repentance and faith. I wonder if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you haven't, you are going to die in your sins and you'll give an account to God and justice is going to have to be measured against you in that time. And, you know, this is a dreadful thought. It's not a thought that I want uh, for you, nor does any believer want for you. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation? If you haven't, do it now. Repent of your sins. The, the word repent means to turn from your sins. If you have a sense of conviction about those sins, understand that God must judge your sins. He must judge you because of your sins. Understand this. It's vital to understand. If you've ever wondered how much God loves you, if you've ever wondered how broad, how deep, how high, how far the love of God reaches, then that love is shown to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. And, you know, this, all this rubbish, commercially driven rubbish called, called Easter, it's, it takes away from the reality of what Jesus really did for us. There is one crucial thing in what John declares. Behold the Lamb of God. There is only one other Lamb that was supplied in Scripture, and that was in Genesis 22. God will provide for himself a lamb. I urge you to put your trust in the Lamb of God this morning. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you here this morning. We praise you for the love that you have shown us in Jesus Christ, your Son. We praise you this morning, Lord God, that that love has been revealed to us through the cross and in the gospel, Lord. We thank you that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And we pray, Lord, that those who are not believers and who listen this morning will, or at any time, Lord, listen to this message, will be convicted of their sins and, and search for you, Lord God, that they might find you. 
We thank you that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we ask you, Lord, this morning that you would stir hearts toward faith in you. We praise you. We praise you for the giving of your son to die in our place. And we love you this morning. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, we want to do one more thing here this morning. And um, I'm hoping that you uh, have uh, some elements that you can uh, join with me in the giving of thanks. And um, we'll leave this verse up in the background here as we do so. Praise God. There's not much more that is necessary for us to say here this morning before we give thanks. Mark 14 verse 22. As Jesus was celebrating the Last Supper with his disciples, and Mark says, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing, blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And so I have some, some bread here for myself and I hope that you're able to join with me this morning and let's eat together. Our Father, we thank you for the body of Christ, the symbology, Lord, of, of this uh, bread this morning is simple, just to represent and to remind us of all that Jesus did. And there's no better time for us to be reminded of that than at Easter. So we thank you for Christ, our Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's give thanks for the cup. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Father, we thank you for the cup this morning. This is a simple representation again but a profound one. And we thank you for that blood shed for the many, that by faith in the blood of Jesus, all who come believing are washed clean and made anew. Amen. Let's drink together. Praise the Lord. Well, thank you for being with us this morning. Uh, we do appreciate you. We appreciate everyone who has joined with us uh, over the weeks. We would encourage you to share the um, streams 
uh, the live streams off Facebook, off YouTube, uh, DLive. We'll be renaming the DLive channel soon so that it has the correct name on it. Um, uh, all these, all these things—they're a great blessing, and you know, it's our hope that um, that part of the lunacy that is out there in the uh, crazy, hyper-charismatic, word of faith churches, uh, in the ultra-legalistic churches, all that kind of thing. Uh, I, I hope that in this time, if there's something good that the Lord can do, one of the things is to draw people back to the simplicity of truth and the teaching uh, of the Word of God. So please keep your eye on our uh, pages, uh, the church page and the Facebook page. I'm hoping to have a couple of new things up and running uh, as a regular fixture. Um, and uh, so hopefully that will be happening uh, in this coming, these coming days. So keep your eye on them. Um, and once that starts, I'll be doing that at the same time, uh, uh, regularly. So praise the Lord. Thanks for being with us. God bless you. Um, live for Jesus this week. Do what you can to share, share the gospel with people. I'll tell you one, a couple of things just quickly, you know, um, being on Facebook and, and debating among believers and all that kind of stuff, there, there can be some value to all that kind of stuff. You know, it can it can be worthwhile, but it is nowhere near as important as you and I sharing the gospel with the lost. Sharing the true gospel about sin and salvation with the lost and, and helping introduce them to uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, that's something that will have a value uh, beyond this lifetime. So, uh, praise the Lord. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.